This is Alan Gilman, and you are listening to Thinking Biblically for Monday, February the 10th, 2020. This is the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. Alan regards the entire Bible as the only inspired written Word of God. Through his teaching, he seeks to apply all Scripture to every area of life. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca. So this is the second week of what I'm calling my new format, because it's a new format. Uh, Up till now, I was writing articles and reading them and wrapping them up as a podcast. And uh, here on in, we're going to try to be a little more timely and and, and maybe responding to some of the things going on and relating them to the subject at hand. I'm hoping to do some interviews and reviews, and um, we'll see. In fact, if you have any ideas, the things that you want me to cover, people that you'd like me to have on this podcast, uh, let me know. So here's a news story that uh, came up last week, maybe you heard, heard it, that relates to what we're going to be covering for the next little while on Thinking Biblically, and it has to do with a representative of PETA, which stands for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals suggested that we stop using the term pet, preferring something like companion for our personally owned but not work-related animals. They were asserting that saying the term pet is derogatory and patronizes the animal. There's so much that can be said about this, including the fact that one of the interviewers pointed out what would happen to PETA's name if people stopped using the word pet, but Besides that, um, this kind of idea reflects uh, how we have, over the past while, have more and more put animals and humans uh, on the same plane. I I think some people even see animals and certain animals on a higher plane than than human beings. And there's several reasons why why this is so. Uh, And uh, one of it might be that uh, many of us um, have been seeing depictions of of animals humanized for for decades now, you know, Disney movies uh, and, and and others where animals have been given uh, human uh, personalities. And so more and more, and whether it's from that or not, I don't know, but more and more we we look at the animal world uh, as if they have human personalities. More than that, though, more than raising animals to a human level, I think what's happened to us is we've lowered human beings to an animal level. We've, we've decreased the way we look at human beings. So we've, in my opinion, brought humans down to the level of animals. And whether that's because of people being taught for a long period of time now that the uh, monkeys are our ancestors and that sort of thing. And, and um, we think ourselves as part of the animal kingdom. And so because of that, we would want to then pass on to the animals the same dignity, if there's any left, same dig- dignity that we show ourselves. And so they, there's an inner consistency in a, a way of looking at the world that 
equates humans to animals. And this is very relevant for this podcast that where we're talking about what it means to think biblically. And so viewing the viewing the world through this lens where humans and animals are on on an equal plane in terms of, of, of value and dignity and so on. This is a lens through which some people see the world. And biblically, I would say it's a it's a skewed lens. It's one of many skewed lenses that we, that we see the world through. Uh, and that's not to say that there isn't a place for what's become known as animal rights. Very clearly in the scriptures, God values the animal world. Human beings were given the care of the planet, including the care of, uh, of, of animals. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, when God commands uh, the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath, to keep the seventh day holy, and to not work on that day, not only were adults not to work, but children were not to work, servants were not to work, and animals would not were not to work either. They were to be allowed to rest too. And so God does show care and and some dignity to the animal world not at the same level as human beings and that's where things that's where things go uh, a bit off and so that's what we're going to do in the next little while we're going to be looking at what i'm calling some of the skewed lenses uh that we see the world through and how the bible provides us with the clear lens, the best lens, the only good lens through which to, to see the world, to relate to it properly. And so last week, I, and it might be a good idea if you haven't listened to that, to, to, to listen to that podcast and, and hear how I talk about how we all see the world through um, a perspective, through the proce- a process of interpretation, but not all interpretations of the world in which we live are equally valid. Just like if your eye is injured, then you don't see the world properly. And even a, a healthy eye, and I go into this in, in the prior podcast, even a healthy eye processes what it sees. But we hope our eyes are processing uh, accurately. And, uh, and it, the way we, we look at the world is, is through various lenses that a lot of, a lot of it's learned from childhood, we pick up from other people and we might change how we look at things and we might swap out one set of lenses for another set of lenses as as we uh, grow up. The thing is, why this is so important to, to look at from a biblical frame of reference is, is not just the fact that the Bible gives us God's worldview, God's perspective. We have an additional problem that because we all look at the world a certain way, we also look at the Bible a certain way. And so, if we're going to think biblically, then we need to read the Bible and understand the Bible on its own terms, in terms of how it sees itself. It's possibly this is something most of us have never thought about before. We might think, well, we read the Bible, good enough. Uh, there's one major skewed lens that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but I think it's a good illustration. And it's one of the ways that some people read the Bible. You might take a course 
um, called the, the Bible is Literature, for example. And it's possible that in a course like that, depending where it's taught, that you might have somebody that has a regard for the Bible as a piece of ancient literature, and it's an, it's an amazing uh, collection of, of books, it certainly is, and, and there are many people who, while not ascribing to what it asserts, do value it. And there are professors and other scholars that value the Bible at one level without accepting what the Bible asserts. And especially, the biggest assertion of them all is that God exists, God is real, God created the, the universe, God communicates to people. So, if you read the Bible but believe that what it actually is is a collection of ancient Jewish and Christian myths that just like the Greeks have their mythic gods, so the Jewish people had their one mythic god and they told their stories as if this god was real. Now, people can believe that. But if you read the Bible through that lens, then you're going to look at the Bible in, in a skewed way. You're not going to derive from the Bible what it is truly asserting because you're actually contradicting a core element that it actually asserts. So even, let's, you can take a course like that and you yourself may not believe in the existence of God, but at least you could accept the Bible on its own terms. So you could disagree with the Bible, but at least relate to the stories on their own terms. So that when it says, God spoke to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, God spoke, so instead of reinterpreting that according to your agnosticism or atheism, at least you can recognize the Bible teaches the reality of God. So if you want to read the Bible uh, effectively, at least need to take it on its own terms, whether you agree with it or not. Now, we shouldn't have to spend much time on, on that aspect of Scripture for most of the people listening to a podcast like this. I would assume that most people uh, listening to Thinking Biblically believe that, the, that God is central to the Scriptures. But at the same time, there are still skewed lenses through which even the most well-meaning and serious Bible readers and students and even teachers and scholars, um, th- there's some major skewed lenses through which we look at the Bible and and. and even though when we do that, there are elements that get through anyway and, and, and truth that gets through anyway, we don't engage the Bible to the depths and to the, it's a, the effectiveness, both for our own lives and then how we share it with other people. We, as long as we look at it through these skewed lenses, we're really going to miss out. And so we're going to look at what I think are the three biggest skewed lenses that many Bible readers uh, see the Bible through. 
I might be, I don't know if I'm getting the grammar right, but you know what I mean. So for the next little while, next few episodes, and I don't know if, if we'll talk about other things and along the way and, and get back to some of this, but we're going to get started today. Uh, I'm going to introduce what I think are the three major skewed lenses that we need to confront, that we need to replace with clear, biblically-oriented lenses. There's these three major ones. I believe that they're related. I believe that resolving one of these helps with the other three. The third one especially confronts the other two. And it's this third one that if we could get a hold of it and understand it for what it is and correct it properly, a lot of other dominoes in terms of of various obstacles that stand in the way of of clear, effective Bible understanding, these dominoes will begin to fall. And we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to introduce the three of them. They might sound complicated. I'm going to explain them in a way that's not complicated. Um, with the time remaining, we we'll, might just have time to really focus on one of them, maybe get into the second one. But I do want to introduce all three first. And the three major skewed lenses that prevent us from understanding the Bible on its own terms are Platonic dualism, that's the first one. Second one is reductionism. And the third one is supersessionism, also called replacement theology. Platonic dualism, reductionism, and supersessionism, or replacement theology. Let's get into it really quickly uh, so that I can define the terms and you'll, you'll see, see where I'm going with this. So the first one is platonic dualism. And that's the belief that the, the spiritual world is good, while the material world is bad. And that's so common. It's, it's common to think uh, um, among Bible believers that somehow there's this idealistic, pure and good spiritual world, and that while there is a, the material world in which we live, the, the world of, of stuff, is, is substandard, it's bad, and all the rest of it. And that's just not true. It's not even true that the the spiritual world is all good, because like the material world, all of creation, the things visible and the things invisible, have been affected by what the Bible calls sin. God has cursed the creation, and so there there are issues all through all existence. When God made the universe various times in Genesis chapter 1 God says it is good and then when he's done after the creation of human beings he says it is very good God created the universe as good the problem with life which I've already mentioned has to do with the fact that our first parents Adam and Eve disobeyed God and did the one thing that he told them not to do. And as a result, God not only cursed 
the human beings, he also cursed the ground. And so the world is affected by sin and the curse, but the universe in, in, its, in its very essence, its very purpose, was originally designed as good. We don't have time to go into this that much, um, but it's important to understand that even though our existence has been affected by sin and the curse, God's purposes can still be realized in this real world in which we live. I've heard people say things like the work is, is part of the curse, and that's not true. Work was part of, the, of God's original design. Now, work has been cursed. God told uh, Adam in, in, Genesis, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, that the ground was cursed because of, of him, and it would produce thorns, and he'd work by the sweat of his, of his brow. So the creation wasn't going to respond to the work of human beings in the way that it was originally designed. But work in itself was good. Before sin came into the world, the, our first parents were told, to be fruit, were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So sex and having children, family, is all part of God's good design in the world that, that he made. Sometimes I hear references to the spiritual world or the heavenly realm as more real than the physical one. But the Bible doesn't teach different kinds of reality. It doesn't teach different levels of reality. All there is, is the real. One integrated creation of things visible and things invisible. To split them, and especially in this way of those things that are material are bad and that the spiritual is good, uh, does a real number on our understanding of the Bible. That's why it's a skewed lens. And it it creates all sorts of, 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 I call it fragmentation in how we relate to life. Some of the ways that we think of what the Bible calls the age to come comes out of this idea that, uh, that, that we're going to go upon death and then at the end of all things we're going to be jettisoned away and out of a decrepit physical reality into a heavenly, spiritual-only, wonderful eternity. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible actually teaches that God's going to redeem the creation, that he's going to raise the dead, that a new Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven where God, God's domain and come to earth and God himself will live among people. There is a defragmentation, a fragmentation due to sin that has that has made a chasm between human experience and God and his will. And 
that fragmentation, that breaking, will be reintegrated fully one day. When we come to believe in Yeshua, Jesus, as our Messiah, as our Savior, God begins the work of of reintegration in our own lives. We were separate from God because of sin and the curse. Yeshua's death and resurrection with a real body, real special, special body, but still a real physical body with, with incredible attributes, just like we will have one day. What he did when we trust in him, the reality that he has come into becomes, starts to become part of our lives. And we begin to see um, a reconciliation between us and God and us and the world in which we live, which includes our relationships which includes our relationships not only to people, but to the, to the ground and to the animals. As I said, there is a place for uh, proper animal care, and certainly we've, we are not to exploit animals. They're part of God's good creation. And learning how to relate to the, the animal world is, is an important part of who we are as human beings and part of of the creation mandate. And it hasn't been abrogated by a a recreation mandate because uh, now we focus on spiritual things. We don't have to care about the the physical ones. The Bible doesn't think that way. It, it, It doesn't think on those terms at all. There's reference uh, in, in the New Testament to how can you how can you say you love God whom you can't see and hate your brother who you can see? And it's not just because our brother is some sort of spiritual entity. It's that we are called to live in the world that God created in a godly way. And so how we relate to this world is so very important. That's why when we look at, at the books of Moses, and much of the books of, of Moses are are. are it contains universal principles. The people of Israel at Mount Sinai were given God's revelation of how to live, and some of those things were just for that time, some of those things were just for them, and some of those things are for everyone. And, and some of the universal principles include um, family and, and sexual relations, but there's even things like building code. We made a, a house and they had flat roofs, and you're supposed to put a barrier around the top of the roof so that people would not fall off. And fair weights and measures. That's not, that's not just a, a spiritual, moral thing. That's a real-world, good thing that God calls people to do as he calls us to live in, in the world that he made. And so that's a, a, a few-minute summary of the skewed lens of Platonic dualism. Platonic dualism, separating the spiritual world, which is supposedly good, from the material world, which is supposedly bad. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches an integrated reality of things visible and invisible working together, that it was all designed to be good, and that the world that we, that we live in uh, is, is one in which we are to live out the goodness of God. In the bit of time we have remaining— Briefly, and maybe we'll come back to the second one, and then I do want to spend significant time on the third one because I think it's that important. I think it's that relevant. So the second one is reductionism. And it's a fancy word, but what reduction, reductionism is, is it's taking the concrete stories of Scripture 
and reducing them to abstract concepts. And this is something that we see in systematic theologies. Uh, And I'm not dissing systematic theology. Systematic theology, if you find a systematic theology book, very typical, is you'll have uh, several parts and then subparts of each part. And you might have part one, God. Part two, human beings. Part three, something else. Uh, and, uh, And... then we'll, in part one, you've got God, and it'll be the existence of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, the power of God, uh, and, 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 and various things. Of course, there'd be a section on, on God the Son, Jesus or Yeshua, and, and, and his, his, his incarnation, and, and all sorts of various topics. And uh, so basically, it's a systematic theology is a topical arrangement of the concepts that you find through reading scriptures. If it's hopefully if it's a biblically based systematic theology, and I think that's fine and dandy. That's really helpful. I think we should we should study and have an understanding of the love of God, the goodness of God, the forgive the forgiveness of God, the patience of God, uh, understanding how. Yeshua died for us and what it means and try to discover how it works if we can and and have these discussions on these topics, theological topics of things that we find in the Bible. Without dissing systematic theology in and of itself, the problem with understanding God's truth from the Bible in this topical fashion is that God didn't reveal his truth in the Bible in that way. God revealed his truth primarily through what we call narrative, which is story form. Even things like God's laws, principles, directives, I prefer to call them directives, in the books of Moses, it's all found within the story of Israel, specifically the story of Israel being rescued from Egypt and being prepared to enter the promised land. So we call that a narrative context. It's not simply uh, God speaking on the mountain, giving universal principles. Yes, God spoke on the mountain. Yes, God gave some universal principles, but they have a context in which they're given. So much of the scripture, almost the entirety of scripture, has some sort of narrative context. Paul's letters should be obvious. And the other letters, the letters were written to either individuals or communities. In some of the letters, it's very obvious that the writer, uh, Paul wrote about half of the letters, um, is addressing a particular situation or a problem or a concern that he had about something going on there. We may not understand exactly what that issue or problem was, But these are letters written to real people in a real time and place for a real reason. It has some sort of narrative. And when I say narrative, I don't mean fiction. It's just, it's, it's story style. There's something going on. There's people doing things. They're doing things right. They're doing things wrong. And you get all that. There's some sort of narrative context. The Gospels, of course, are narrative. The stories of Yeshua, Jesus, the book of Acts, um, in the New Testament, even the book of Revelation, it begins with a vision and 
John is told to write this to seven communities of believers, and they're addressed in chapters two and three of the book. How the rest of the book relates to these seven churches, we don't know for sure. It's not that clear. And exactly how it's to be understood is another story. But it's a story, and especially the book of Revelation, it's, it's written as a narrative. It's written in story form. The prophets of the Hebrew Bible, so much of it is, is direct story, and then there's whole sections of, of speeches, thus says the Lord, and, and the prophet speaks, and so much of what they say is directed specifically at particular peoples and situations, geographical locations, and so on. Of course, the, the writings, the stories of the judges, and before that, Joshua entering the Promised Land, the, the judges, uh, the stories of, of the kings, they're stories. And we're to learn about God and His truth through these stories. And these stories are not always explicit in what the point is. In Aesop's fables, you have stories, clearly made-up stories. Often it's uh, personified animals, getting back to that from the beginning. So that's been going on for a long time. Not in the way I think Bambi and, and, and others in more recent times, but let's not get distracted. In Aesop's fables, you have a story, and then it ends with, and the moral is. And so these stories have a particular point to learn a particular lesson about life. And there's no real context, except maybe the historical context where these stories had their origin. But by and large... They're designed to be eternal principles. And so we can learn about certain, certain things about life. But that's not how the Bible is written. The Bible isn't written for, and the moral of the story is. You know, what's the moral of Samson? What's the moral of Gideon? What, some of these stories are actually, they have a lot of ambiguities and there's things that aren't clear and they should challenge us in our thinking and we should dig into these stories and think about them for a long time and, and, and we learn about God from them. And we, we're introduced to complex characters. Moses and David um, have all sorts of, of personal issues, just like us. And they face complicated situations, just like us. And, then, and yet we try to take these stories and derive clear categorical concepts from them. It's called reductionism because we take the fullness of these complex stories and then we reduce them to neat and tidy principles of life. And on one hand, when that is appropriate, it's appropriate and it's fine if, if, if those concepts are really in those stories. But we, if we leave it at that, so for example, let's say you're somebody who likes to write in your Bible. I don't, but maybe you, you do or on your Bible app, you, you put in notes or something, and you're reading a particular uh, story, David fighting Goliath, and you write in the column, in the margin rather, something about, you know, courage, or, you know, don't think you, don't belittle yourself or something. And so you summarize some lesson that you learned with this thought. Well, it's very easy after to, to view the story through the lens of that thought. And, and that's part of the problem with some approaches to systematic theology. Going through the Bible, reducing it down to concepts, and then we're stuck there. 
We're stuck there. And so we go from real life situations through which God chose to reveal himself through these real life situations, complex stories. Do we think that we could make it better by taking all sorts of lessons that we learn and packaging it up in concepts? And so what we've done is we've taken real life stories that we, we call this concrete real things, real people, real circumstances, real places, and we reduce them to an abstract idea, love and goodness and justice. And all those, those ideas are really important, and, and our view of love and goodness and justice and, 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 and so on should be uh, um, informed by Scripture. But we got to continue to pursue the truth of God within the narrative context that that he's that that he's uh, given us to uh, how do I want to say that within the narrative context that God has provided there's a relationship between reductionism and platonic dualism and both of them have this fragmentization thing going on where um in in Platonic thought, you have an ideal, abstract ideal that is um, that relates to but is disconnected from the real world in which we live. And reductionism does the same thing. It takes the uh, God's truths which are embedded within, and that, maybe that's the wrong term, that they're discovered within a narrative context, and then we reduce it to an abstract con- concept and then remove the abstract concept from the, the stories in which they're given. And I believe in order to see the Bible on its own terms and to get out of it what we need to get out of it, we need to stay within the narrative context and avoid reductionism, avoid trying to find morals, avoid turning it into concepts. Again, the concepts, let's discuss the concepts, but let's learn them within the stories of Scripture that God himself has inspired. Now, key to the narrative structure of the Bible is the third lens, the third skewed lens supersessionism or replacement theology and the the clear lens is properly understanding what i call the centrality of israel and god's plan if we don't understand that which is a key component of the story of scripture then we're going to see the bible through a skewed through a skewed lens and failing to see israel's place in the plan of god is one of the things that spurs on reductionism, and platonic dualism. If we allow the Bible to speak on its own terms and allow us to uh, see and be drawn into the story of Israel in Scripture for all it's worth, then we're going to get the nourishment of Scripture in the way that God intends, I believe. Now, one of the ways that we can connect with the centrality of Israel in God's plan, which I will talk more 
about in the next little while. But one way to do that, mentioned it last week, is my upcoming Israel study tour, which is October the 5th through the 18th uh, this year, 2020. Uh, you could find out more from israelstudytours.ca. And I work really, really hard with the tour company, Shore Study Tours, to give you a, an authentically biblical tour and engagement with the land of Israel. And I could talk more about that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it at that. If you're interested, um, or if you're not yet interested, still go to israelstudytours.ca and see uh, the uh, itinerary as we have it right now. And uh, anyway, we'll leave it at that and contact me if you want more information. When you go there, you can get my contact information. You could also go to alangilman.ca. You can sign up for my newsletter and uh, contact me from there as well. Next week, I'm going to sum up again these, these three skewed lenses, hopefully very briefly, and get more into the, the issue of replacement theology. And I, I have a presentation that I want to share with you that I call the many faces of replacement theology. From my experience, there are people that think that they uh, uphold um, a, the value of Israel, and the Jewish people, and the scriptures, and yet don't realize that at the same time, they're actually undermining how the scripture uh, um, sees Israel and the Jewish people. So we'll talk about that more next time. Please share this podcast, comment um, in your podcast provider, um, check out thinkingbiblically.ca for past episodes, and while you're there, again, check out our next Israel study tour and subscribe to my newsletter. So until next time. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Biblically podcast with Bible teacher Alan Gilman. More information about Alan Gilman's Bible teaching is available at his website, alangilman.ca.